you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see those of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, whether it's your very first time with us, whether you've been with us for years. We're just so grateful to be together this morning as we have the opportunity to dive into God's Word. We just had an opportunity to sing songs together. Um, community can happen together uh, before and after service, and then we get to just see what God has for us through His Word over the next several moments. Because I believe that each person who's here, whether here means in person or live online or watching or listening later, each person here is someone that God loves, that God created, that Jesus died for, that the Holy Spirit wants to draw one step closer to God the Father this morning. And so that might be the very first step of faith, or it might be just a closer step in discipleship and Christ-likeness. And so we're so grateful for each and every one of you being part of our service today, because I believe that God has something for each and every one of us who's here. We are continuing and rather closing out our series called Thankful, looking at the book of Ruth and having hearts of gratitude and reminding ourselves that like the story of Ruth and Naomi, that we might find ourselves in our stories, times where things are difficult, times where things don't make sense, and might wonder where God is in the midst of it, that in the book of Ruth, we don't see God speaking much. We don't even hear his name very often until we get closer to the end. And yet we can see that God is working in such a clear way behind the scenes. And yet if we pay attention, and as Ruth and Naomi and Boaz do, they're able to see God's hand in the midst of it. So whatever season you or I are in, we recognize that it's hard sometimes to be thankful for hard times. But in the hard times, we can still be thankful for certain qualities of who God is and certain gifts that he gives us. Because regardless of our our circumstances, we can be grateful for the fact that God loves us, that there's his kindness, his loyal love, his chesed that we talked about in the first week. Regardless of the circumstances, we can be thankful for his providence. And maybe we want him to provide different things at different times, but he still provided our daily bread, and provides what we need one day at a time. And we can be thankful for his covering, the idea that he protects us, he provides a home for the restless, hope for the hopeless, and peace for the fearful. And so as we close this morning, or the series with this morning's sermon, we're talking about being thankful for redemption. And this is a culmination of the past several weeks. And redemption or redeem or redeemer, that word, those words are used over 23 times in the four chapters of Book of Ruth. It is a vital through line regarding the passage that we have been studying and the passage we'll study this morning. Recognizing that the redemption is vital for us to understand lest we miss what God has for us. And yet, There's a chance that you and I might not be understanding or or grasping redemption fully because we come through it with maybe a different mindset. So as we talk about here, the idea that there is um, the redemption that comes. When I think of redemption now, maybe maybe this is very short-sighted, but my initial thought when I think of redemption or redeem or those types of words is like when I get a gift card and it's talk about like if it's on Amazon, you have points or gift cards, would you like to redeem for this purchase? Or you go to a restaurant and it says, would you like to redeem your rewards? And you click a button and then, you know, you get 
discounts or free food or whatever it is. But if you don't understand how it works properly, then you might put yourself in a position where you're not able to receive that which has been redeemed. So when I went to, I go to Panera quite often. Um, I love uh, their coffee and I study there quite often. And someone gave me a gift card a little while back. And I thought that it was like Starbucks gift cards in the sense of with a Starbucks gift card, you open up the Starbucks app, you upload it on there, you show up, they scan it, and they, you know, you're able to get your drink or your food, whatever it may be. But when I use, I put, so I put the Panera gift card on my phone, I have the Panera app. And so I'm like, oh, can I, I ordered whatever I wanted to order, whatever it was. And then I was like, okay, so here's, here's the, you know, I have it on my app. I'm like, well, do you have the pin number? I was like, no, I don't have the pin number. Like, I just have, I have it on my app. Like, oh yeah, and literally, like their words were, yeah, it's not like Starbucks where you can just scan it like that. I'm like, oh, so you need to know, just in case you ever get one, you need to know that you need to have the number, the 16-digit number, whatever it is, and the four-digit pin, and you keep it with you. Um, maybe, you know, you write it on the tablet of your heart. No, I'm just kidding. But you just, you remember the importance of the pin number. Otherwise, the cashiers at Panera, unless if it's changed in the past few months, will not be able to redeem that gift card. Now, we, can, we think about gift cards, so when I think of it then, my idea of a gift card is it's something that someone else has paid for, but I am the redeemer. I am the one who is able to redeem it and get something. But that's not the idea that we see in biblical redemption. That yes, someone else paid for something, and yet we are the ones that aren't, we are not the redeemers. We, you and me, have a right relationship with Jesus. We are the redeemed. It is not the idea that now we can say, okay, you know, Jesus, he, he lived a perfect life and he died a horrible death. And so he's given me maybe not a gift card, but you hear this phrase sometimes with people like, oh, you know, they just view loving Jesus not as something that changes their life, but just as like a get out of hell free card. And you're like, no, it's a complete, it doesn't change how they live. It doesn't change what they do. That's not what we're looking at here. That redemption means that we are, we have been paid for. We've been bought at a price. And that we are valuable and worthwhile in the eyes of our God. And it means that we are no longer, we're not the ones in power of being able to say, now I am the redeemer. No, 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 no. We fix our eyes and we say what Job says, that I've seen about you and now I've heard, or I've heard about you, now I've seen you. I know that my redeemer lives. And so as we look at the biblical idea of redemption as evidenced through specifically Ruth chapter 4, and then we'll extrapolate, we'll expand that into our context this morning, my hope and prayer is that as we dive into his word together, that each of us would have a moment, whether it's encouragement, whether it's a challenge, whether it's just an insight that inspires, whether it's just a, we don't even know what it is yet, but there would be a moment where God would be speaking to each and every one of us. So I'm going to ask us in a moment to, to open up with a word of prayer. And, and I recognize that it's kind of the beginning of the sermon. I give a five-minute intro, and then I pray, and then we dive in. We would be remiss if we saw prayer before the reading and diving into God's word as just a transitional moment in our service. It's not a transition from one part of the service to the other. It may be a transition from what I wanted to think through or we're processing through, through our lists of things that need to be done, to transition and say, God, what do you have for me today? May we have the eyes, the ears, and the hearts to receive what it is that God has for us. Because I believe each person who's here, what did we say? Someone who's loved by God, someone that Jesus died for, someone that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer together today. So will you, not just as a transition, but as a meaningful moment in our service, will you join us in a word of prayer as we get ready to dive into God's word together? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, we recognize that you are living, you are active. We have heard about you, and like Job, we can see you, and we know that our Redeemer lives. And so we know that, Lord, as we dive into your word, it is living and active. It is ready to inspire, to convict, to teach, to rebuke. Holy Spirit, may you give us, each of us individually, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to understand and receive what you have for us today. And I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we mentioned, we're Ruth chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 12 verses and then the last 9 to 10 verses. Um, but it's important for us to give a little bit of context in order to dive in. We've talked about this even last week. It's like we needed to give some context about some things in order to get a right view of the contents that we're studying. So the context I need to take just a few minutes to unpack is looking at the idea of the goel. And I've mentioned this before. It's the idea of the kinsman redeemer. I quoted, or we referred to the goel last week. It's someone who had the role of being able to fulfill Two specific duties when it comes to if there was a woman whose husband passed away and there were no kids left behind, that the two roles come from Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 talks about the Goel's responsibility to redeem the land, to pay for the land, and that way it still stays within the name of that person, of that family. The Deuteronomy 25 talks about what's the leverate marriage, and that's the marriage that takes place when a widow marries her, bro- her husband's brother, her widow's brother, and any children that come from that line are under the brother's name, not the husband's name, not the, not the still living husband, the second husband. So here's how Andrew Hill and John Walton talk about this in, in one of my survey books about the Old Testament. It says, according to this law, land sold by a person could be bought back by a relative so as to keep the land in the family. Both the law and leverate marriage were intended to preserve family and land, family and land, covenant matters of the first degree. So what does this mean? This means that it takes us all the way back. What's the covenant? Why are we talking about that? The covenant in Genesis 12, when it first starts, when God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram, and eventually names him Abraham. But he talks about how the covenant comes, and part of it is that you will have a land, you will have a name, a great name, Abram, and then you will also be blessed to be a blessing, to bless those around you. And so the idea of a land and the idea of a name are ones that are vital to the understanding of Old Testament scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures, because things like the Leverate marriage and the, the Goel kinsman redeemer, those were installed and instituted so that families that were in crisis would have a way out. So that covenant promises would be put in God's word and implemented by God's people to make sure that covenant promises would be fulfilled. And so we see this here, we continue on as we, we listen from Hill and Walton again. They say this, they say that the Goel provided means, means by, through which a person could be bought back. Oh, sorry, I'm going to look it up here. Um, the Goel provided means by which jeopardized covenant blessings, those which are in jeopardy, could be regained and thus served as an appropriate metaphor for God's grace. Yahweh constantly acted as Goel for Israel, and the New Testament was quick to apply that concept to the role of Christ. 
So it's saying that this role of the goel, that this is a picture, it is a, it is a type, it is a, it is a illustration of what God does for his people. That God, he comes, and in the Old Testament, we see that God serves as the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, the goel, to protect both the land of the people and the line, the family line of faith. And then Jesus is referred to as a kinsman redeemer or applied, that, that verbiage is applied to him throughout the New Testament. And so we're going to take this couple of minutes because we need to recognize the right way to look at redemption. And we do that through looking at the book of Ruth. We see this here, and David Murray has a quotation where he says this. Sometimes when we talk about redemption as the New Testament talks about redemption, we bring in 21st century ideas. In other words, we think that redemption means that I get something and then I get to be the redeemer. I get the gift card, I redeem it, then I get what I want. Instead, it's the idea that, yes, the gift, the redemption is a gift to the ones who've been redeemed. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. It is a gift freely given. But Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor in Germany during World War II, he warns against this idea of thinking that there's a cheap grace. That we think, oh, well, grace doesn't cost me. Grace is a gift from God, so it's free, it's cheap, and therefore it doesn't change how we live. One might, again, it's, it's a little crass, but the idea of might see it as a get-out-of-hell-free card. But there's a costly grace, and this is the cost of discipleship. It's recognizing that Grace cost maybe not us, but it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. It's not free. It's just been paid for and is free to us. But we need to recognize that it's not about us being the redeemer. We need to find our identity in being the redeemed. And so let's take a couple of moments to look at uh, what David Murray says. He says, because we bring in 21st century ideas, here's what he says. If we want to understand Christ's redemption. We need to go back to Ruth because that's where God defines what redemption looks like. Ruth and Boaz, their interaction, their marriage, the role that Boaz plays in Ruth chapter 4 helps us to see what a goel, a proper goel does and what, an imp, what someone who could be doing, excuse me, a goel that should be fulfilling them things, what they do, and then what happens when that person doesn't. So let's unpack this. Ruth's redemption Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we're going to unpack some of the content together this morning. If you remember last week, Ruth 3 ends with Boaz saying, I will cover you. I will be able to redeem you to, to uh, Ruth when she makes a, a marriage proposal. Then she talks about how um, he leaves and, or sorry, Ruth leaves and has all these like wheat with her and goes to talk to Naomi. Naomi's like, how did it go? And Ruth says, you know, he says that he'll work on the matter and Naomi knows that Boaz is a man of character, a man of integrity. And so she says, don't, don't worry. This will be taken care of by the end of the day. For the man will not rest, verse 18 of chapter 3, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So there's excitement. There's culmination. There's the acknowledgement that the redemption for which they have sought is just around the corner. But like we learned last week in the threshing floor, it's almost culmination, but there's still work to be done. So, verse 1 of chapter 4 starts off like this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. A couple of things here for you to be aware of. Culturally speaking, when it comes to gathering at the town gate, the town gate was the place where legal 
transactions took place. Why is that? One, it's because it was a place that was highly public and highly visible. In other words, there was no underhanded dealing. There wasn't anything behind the scenes. Two, there would be elders who would come, specific men that would be elders in the community that would be serving as witnesses. But then even passers-by or people who would see that, oh, there's, there's legal business taking place, they would be able to see what's happening, and then they too could listen in on the proceedings. Now, this idea of, of the... Um, uh, excuse me, the idea of being at the town gate. Even now, we see God's providence of how it just so happened that the Goel, the one that Boaz referred to, who was closer in line than Boaz to redeem Ruth, ends up walking up. And so he says, come here, my friend, sit down. We have some business to work through together. There's elders here. Elders, would you come here and sit down? And I have something here. In fact, this dynamic in Ruth 4 can, could be likened to the idea of a, of a stenographer or a court transaction writing down, here are the Here's what happened in this legal case, and that way no one can question the veracity or the truth of what occurred, because it's all here legally written out. So when he says, come here, my friend, this word, my friend, is not translated properly. Sorry, that's not the right way to say it. It's a word that is hard to translate. And so the translators in the NIV say it, my friend, because it's, it's to imply that it's someone specific with an unspecified name. In other words, it's someone who's important to the story, but is not important, like we don't know who they are because they're not really a main character. It's like an extra in a movie where it's like they they may have a role, but they're not the main character, so we don't really need to know much about them. But in the Hebrew, it's it's an interesting uh, word because the word for my friend is just translated like poloni almoni. And so it's a rhyme. People say it's kind of like a... um, like how we use the word like hocus pocus or higgledy piggledy. Like it's just, it's a rhyming word that doesn't have a super specific meaning. But the reason that Polonia Moni is there, the, the, the best translation or the commentators say, a way that we might want to word that is such the idea of like Mr. So-and-so. Someone who has a role, but we don't need to know their name. It's used other places in the Old Testament when it says, oh, this person will meet that person at such and such a place. That word for such and such is the idea of polonia moni. It's saying something definite that's undefined. And the author of Ruth may be saying this because it's important for us to know who he is, about what role he fills. But as we'll see, he misses out on having his name written, not just in the story of this story in Ruth, but throughout the story of God's people in history because of the choices he makes and the choice he doesn't. So let's continue here. I'm going to read verses two through five, or two through four, excuse me, and then we're going to look at a list of some of the things that what a kinsman redeemer must be willing to do in order to fulfill that role. Verse two, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town, remember, these are the witnesses, and says, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, said Polonia Moni, Mr. So-and-so. And so here's where we look at here, that there are four things that we see in this passage. A few of them we just mentioned, a few more we'll read, that embody what a kinsman redeemer has to do in order to fulfill the role of the goel. Remember, what does a goel do? Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus 25 redeems the land. Deuteronomy 25 redeems a person and a bloodline uh, through leverate marriage. So here's the first thing that happens. 
The first thing a kinsman redeemer needs to do is needs to be a close relative. This is not like 17 cousins removed. This is not a neighbor who wants to, with good intention, do a good thing. This is someone who has to be a close relative in order to fulfill the Goel responsibility. It has to be a kinsman redeemer. That's why that verbiage is so important in the idea that it has to be a kin. We see this here because in Boaz, when he's presenting this to the Mr. So-and-so, he says, you are the next in line and I, you know, you're first in line. I should bring this up to your attention, but let me know if you're not going to redeem it because I'm next in line. It reveals to us that the order of closeness of the relative is important for the kinsman redeemer role to be fulfilled. Number two, we look at the idea that not only must be a close relative, it must, this person, this kinsman redeemer must be able to do it. It must have the actual financial funds to make it work. Must have the ability because say, oh, I want to redeem it, but I don't have any money. Well, that would just create the dynamic where then the land could be put up for sale by someone else and it's outside the family and, and all these different things. It could still be lost. And so the land would be lost in that family line. So this person must have the financial ability in order to pay for that, in order to redeem the land. And so we see that here. We see that once, when, he's, when Boaz presents it as the land that Elimelech is selling or used to own, it says, he's, I'll redeem it. He says, this is an investment. I recognize that this is going to cost some money, but I can reap the benefits of this. So the land purchase benefits me. So here's how it continues on. Starting in verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Remember, a kinsman redeemer, Goel, helps with the land and the line. And so when it came to just the land, Poloni Almoni, the Mr. So-and-so was like, I'll do that. That's a benefit to me. That's going to help me out and help increase my wealth. But then when he finds out that he would have to marry Ruth, the Moabite woman, he says, he hesitates. He balks at it. He recognizes that if I were to do this, this might cause more, not just a, this might not help my financial situation. This might hurt it. So not only must someone be able but a kinsman redeemer must also be willing in order to fulfill that role. So verse 5, Boaz presents the whole case. Verse 6, this is how Polonia Moni responds. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. To be clear, the antecedent for it is not referring to Ruth at this time. It's still talking about redeeming the land. But the idea is that with the land comes the line. With the responsibility of the land comes the responsibility to extend the line of Elimelech. And so Poloni Amoni recognizes, Mr. So-and-so says, this is going to harm my financial dynamic. Not only am I raise, getting money from this, but then I'm going I'm to have a child. And this child, if this child grows up and we were to have a child, then that child would have the right to that land. So I'm not going to be able to keep the land. And if he's married already, we don't have it in the text. If he's married already, that can cause division. If there's some kids here, some kids there, what does that look like? And so no longer is he willing to fulfill the role. And it's indicative or it, it's worth noting that his concern was his own estate. His concern was his own line and his own land. And because he was thinking of his own line and his own land, he's someone that He's an important role. He's like an extra in the story. But we don't know his name. He was so desiring, wanting to keep his name going, that when thinking of himself in his name, 
he ended up losing, and we don't know who his name is. He's just Poloni Almoni. He's just Mr. So-and-so. He's John Doe, who did a thing one time, or rather, who didn't do a thing one time. One of the commentators, it's a, you could see the idea behind it, but one of the commentators says this gives us a small picture of the idea that whoever seeks to save their lives will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose their life for my sake will find it. Poloni Almoni is like, I'm not willing to risk what I have to help my kin. Therefore, we don't know his name. Whereas, do we know the name of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and who Ruth and Boaz's kid? Obed? Like, we're gonna, we know their names. We don't know Poloni Almoni's. So, we continue on. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel... For the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. This might be akin to, you know, in olden days when you would shake hands with someone and like on a sale, like my word is my bond. Like we have shaken hands. This is, you know, this is good. Now we have written documents, right? But, but in, the, in, in previous times, this would be a way to say, no, this is a legal binding. Remember, the witnesses are there. The elders are there. They're seeing this all happen. No one can dispute that Polonia Moni, Mr. So-and-so, willingly gave up the right to redeem the land and the line for the preservation of his name. And that Boaz says, I'll redeem. I'll redeem all of it, all the land and Ruth and all of their line. And so, we recognize it's the, the shedding of the sandal. Now, if you want to do deeper study, you can look at Deuteronomy 25. In that same section that talks about the levirate marriage, it talks about the shame that comes from not willing, being willing to help out as a goel. It talks about how the widow, the woman who would, through you, the line would continue for her dead husband, that she would take the sandal and she would spit at the feet of the, the fake goel or the one who's not willing and then she would say, your, may you be cursed, and may your family line be known as the line of the unsandaled. The line of someone who is unwilling to fulfill your covenant role. Now, it's a little different because Ruth isn't in the story, and so the commentators are like, there's a connection there. It's certainly from the same passage. There's certainly the idea of a removal of a sandal, but perhaps in practice it became less of a, you know, a stealing and a dismissing and a shaming and more of the Goel, the Polonia Moni, willingly just saying, I, I can't do it. And Boaz, he fulfills this role. Boaz is willing to do it. And so let's read here verse 8. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or town, his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Boaz, with his noble character, does not look out for his own estate and his own name. But in the willingness to not look after his own name, his name has become synonymous with character and integrity. And his name, Boaz, means strength and the strength of how he lived out his faith. And so the fourth thing that we see from this passage is that not only a close relative, not only able, not only willing, but must be willing to or prepared to marry the person that is being redeemed. This is the line in the sand that caused Polonia Moni to not be willing to redeem. And so we look at this and we think, okay, like Boaz fulfilled all four of these. And so he is this really 
exemplary, exemplary picture of what a redeemer looks like, what redemption looks like from the Hebrew mindset, from the Hebrew scriptures. And so we look at that, and we think this is important for us. And so let's go to the, go to the next slide here as we figure out this idea. We looked at Ruth's redemption. We, we looked at how that um, is important for us to acknowledge how Ruth was redeemed by the purchase and, and redemption from Boaz. But now we're looking at Naomi's redemption. How is it that Naomi is redeemed through this story? We remember that she left, and when she left, she had a husband, Elimelech, two sons, Malon and Kilion, and she left full. But because of the famine, she had to leave Israel to go to Moab. And when she's at Moab, her husband dies, sons die, comes back only with Ruth. And she starts Ruth chapter 1. The women recognize, is that, is that Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me, because Naomi means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, because I am bitter. And I left full, and now I return empty. That the name Mara means bitter. And so let's look here, starting in verse 11, and see how the tables have turned um, and see how things have changed. So let's close out the story, then we'll go to Naomi. So verse 11, then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Why Rachel and Leah? Because it was through Rachel and Leah that the 12 tribes of Israel were birthed. Each of those 12 sons became their own tribes. It's may you, may you be fruitful. May there be multiplication of the line of Elimelech through Boaz and Ruth. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. We know about Boaz. We know his name. We don't know Poloni Ammoni's name. So that came to fruition as well. And then verse 12, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, why are we talking about Tamar? Tamar is a section, a story that I cannot spend a ton of time on uh, just for the sake of time, but it's important for the context in order to understand the content. The context is, is that Judah and Tamar, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. Judah's son died. Tamar asked, can you please provide a, a leverate? Can you provide someone who can be the redeemer, the goel for me? And Judah continues to reject that, doesn't provide another son for Tamar to marry. Now, this is where, you know, Tamar takes things in her own hands, and it's, it's, it's not a great passage. This is actually found in Genesis 38. Genesis 37, we meet Joseph and the brothers. Genesis 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar. And then 39 through 50, we learn about Joseph. So the story of Judah and Tamar and how they, Judah disregards his family is in contrast of how Ju, Joseph acts nobly. And so what happens in this story briefly is that because Tamar was refused a husband from Judah, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. She goes to a place. She seduces Judah, her father-in-law, in order to sleep with him. And then says, he says, well, I'll pay you later. He's like, well, give me, your, give me your staff and give me your signet, so your seal and your cord. And so he, takes, he gives that to her. She leaves. He comes back and doesn't see that prostitute there. A couple months pass by, and all of a sudden, Tamar shows up, and she's pregnant. And Judah says, may this woman be killed because of what she's done. And she says, the father of my child is the one who, to whom these belong. And he sees it's his seal, it's his cord. It's like the ancient Hebrew version of Moripovich, like, Judah, you are the father. And it's just like this awkward moment. But it's recognizing that then Judah says, you are more righteous than me because I did not follow the law and you had to take things in your own hand. The son of Judah and Tamar? His name is Perez. 
So when we look here, may your line be like the line of presence saying, may your line be redeemed, just like Perez was a child of a kinsman redeemer. May your line be redeemed, since you, Boaz, are a kinsman redeemer. And in fact, beyond that, if God would redeem the family line of the drama that happened between Rachel and Leah and their kids, in the midst of the unfaithfulness and the lack of being a high-quality character person that between Judah not fulfilling his role with Tamar, if, if Judah and Tamar can have Perez and Perez can be blessed, how much more would we pray that God's blessing would be upon you? Because Boaz, you and Ruth, you are both equal character, your high value, your integrity. And so may God bless you in continuing the line of kids who have been redeemed through, but just like Perez, may yours fulfill that as well. So now we see Naomi, because the scene changes. We fast forward several months, and it says this, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Let's take a moment here to take a notice of something. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. If we look back at Ruth chapter 1, we see that Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years. And yet we know very clearly that there was no kids on their side. There's no kids on, for anyone on Naomi's side. So we, it doesn't say that she was infertile, she struggled with infertility, but we see that this is the time with Boaz and Ruth. Right away, they are able to conceive. Right away, the promise, the blessing that was given by the people towards Boaz and Ruth's son and line is right away, it's God opens that womb and sees it and she's able to give birth to a son. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Now the guardian redeemer is referring to Obed, to the son. Why? He says, may he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Surely that doesn't mean Boaz. Boaz is about the same age as Naomi. Boaz isn't the one that's going to renew her and restore her through her old age. It's the son. It's Obed. It's the one through whom that now she has someone who will care for her in her old age throughout the generation. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's important for us to recognize this, this idea here, because we remember that Ruth referred to herself as Mara, as bitter in the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, or at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of our story. And it reminds us of that there are times that you or I, that we come up with labels for ourselves. In the midst of difficulty or, or struggles or wounds, we come up with labels for ourselves that are not at all who we are in Christ. That I've wrestled, I've shared this before, wrestled with the label of feeling unwanted, of feeling rejected, of feeling like a failed hero. Those are labels that I've, and lies, that I've put upon myself. And so, but if I live out of that identity then I'm missing out on the identity God has for me. She says, call me Mara. Do we see the author of Ruth once refer to Naomi as Mara? No, she's Naomi. The, the, the lies that we tell ourselves, the, the labels that we give ourselves are not the way that we've been created to be. And so we are able to see, yes, there are hard times. I'm not... Um, glossing over the pain and heartache that is represented in this room or joining us online. But who we are is who God says we are. 
Who we are is not what we think in a moment of difficulty. And if who we are is who God says we are, that means we are not the redeemer. We need to have a proper understanding of redemption. We are not the redeemer. We are the redeemed. The ones who've been bought at a price. The one that cost Jesus everything. And the one through whom we are able to say, things might be bitter, but my name's not bitter. My name's pleasant. Or my name is whatever it is. Redeemed, loved, not rejected, not uh, unwanted, not failed hero, but enough. Some of you here just need to hear that you are enough today. And so we see this joy that comes out. Psalm 126 paints this beautifully. I was reading my quiet time a couple of days ago, and it reminds me of the story of Naomi. Psalm 126 says this, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping Carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So it ties in mourning, it ties in weeping, it ties in the, the idea of the harvest of seed and sheaves of, of the harvest come to fruition. And it paints the picture for us that while we don't like to admit it or we struggle in the midst of it, oftentimes our darkest seasons, our moments of grief and mourning and, and pain are often the soil through which God works. They're often the soil that our tears are what water those seeds of faith. And then when we come back or when we're able to return, because eventually the morning will return to dancing. Now to be clear, that may be here on earth. But it may also mean that when um, we still struggle with grief and we struggle with mourning and we, we wrestle with that, it never fully goes away. But it means that eventually... On the other side of heaven, we'll be able to sing songs of joy and be able to recognize that God is working in all the avenues of our lives. But some of you are in a season where you're sitting and you're saying, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Call me broken. Call me wounded. Call me lost. Call me hurting. And it reminds us that as Isaiah talks about Jesus, says that a bruised reed the Messiah will not break. A, a candle that's smoldering, he will not snuff out. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Not just physical sleep, but rest for your souls. And we can find our hope, even in situations that feel hopeless, because we see the story of Naomi, who just a, a year before, dead husband, dead sons, no hope. God made a way where there was no way for her to hold a baby in her arms and to be able to say, that he, she doesn't quote it, but we could hear the echo of Job saying, God, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. I know my Redeemer lives. So we see the picture here. We're going to pull back from Ruth and Naomi. And as we transition to the last few verses and as we take a pull back, we're going to, we've been zoomed in on the story of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi, um, this whole dynamic. But now we're going to take a step back and get a bigger picture. We're going to zoom out to get a fuller idea of where Ruth is and how her story fits into the grander story of God and the redemption of his people. So we see here in the quotation, it's going to go up on your screen in just a moment, Andrew Hill and John Walton talk about this. They say, as a record of an incident that occurred during the Judges period. Remember, Judges was a time where there was the cycle of sin. 
There was rebellion against God. There was ruin at the hands of a foreign nation. There was a request that God would send a helper. There's the, the a rescue from a judge. There would be rest for a season, and then there'd be a rebellion and a repeating of the process over and over again. So in the midst of that darkness, the story of Ruth stands out. It offers a stark contrast to the negative perspective of Israelite faith that's offered through the book of Judges. Rather than Israelites abandoning their loyalty, their chesed, their kindness, and deserting the worship of Yahweh for other gods, the story portrays Ruth acting out of loyalty and embracing Yahweh, denouncing her Moabite gods, even as that which becomes the Davidic line hovers on the brink of extinction. So it's showing us that because of her faithfulness, because of her chesed, because of Naomi, the line from Yes, Abraham, the covenant blessings. Yes, from Perez, the one who is a son of a kinsman redeemer, all the way to including Obed, who is now the son of a kinsman redeemer, and then becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David. The Israelites would look at this and they would see God used a foreign woman who, and her faith in order to be part of the Davidic line, that if, he wanted to, if God wanted David to come from Elimelech and Naomi, he could have done that just as easily, but instead it was through the trials, through through the pain, through the infertility, through the bitterness and the brokenness, that then the faithfulness of a few allow God to work for the betterment of the many and to recognize the faithfulness of God's people working in their day-to-day lives. We don't get to see the bigger picture. Ruth didn't see the bigger picture in her time, but we do. We get to see a bigger picture in her time, in her story, and it gives us courage and hope that God is working a bigger picture in our time, and in our story. So let's read Ruth 4, 18 through 22. The genealogy, parts that we often skip in the Bible, but friends, there is no part of the Bible that is not there on purpose. And so there's a reason this is here. Let's unpack it for a couple minutes together. Verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Why Perez? Kinsman Redeemer, we've hit on this already, continuing the theme. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So we see the big picture. We see Ruth's story fitting into the bigger story. The Bible Project, in one of their um, commentaries on Ruth, says it this way. This is a big message in a short story. Remember, Ruth is only four chapters. Even then, the word redeem, redeemer, redemption happens 23 times. It shows how God is constructing the grand story out of the small, seemingly inconsequential stories of everyday people. This little story is intentionally framed at the beginning and end by the larger storyline of the Bible. Remember, what did we read the first day? This happened during the time of the judges. That's the beginning of Ruth 1. And how does it end? King David is coming. So Ruth is right in the middle. Ruth shows how God is at work in the day-to-day activities of average people. All the characters face life's normal challenges. Death, moving, lack of finances, uh, financial resources, excuse me, familiar responsibilities, and find that God is weaving a story of redemption out of those details. The book of Ruth encourages us to view our day-to-day lives as part of God's bigger plan for our lives and world. We don't get to see the end of our story, but we can trust the author who's writing our story. We don't get to see how things end, but we can see how God has allowed the ends for so many different people and his faithfulness. And his faithfulness 
He brings a foreign woman into the line of David. And he allows, through that faithfulness of Boaz and Ruth, we see who ultimately comes, the King David, the one through whom Israelites mention, and we know to be true, the idea of the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate chosen one comes through his line of David, which means that Ruth is part of the line of Jesus. We're in our series, we've been talking about what we could be thankful for, and just a couple of moments to look at this. As we look at the four sermon titles from our four weeks through the four books, or four chapters, and the idea of being thankful for kindness, we're thankful for God's chesed, his loving kindness, his loyal love, that works even when we feel like there's bitterness, he can still make things pleasant in his time. We're thankful for providence, how things just so happen to work out a certain way. Even the beginning today, just it, they sat down at the town gates as, as it turned out, as it happened, that the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, was showing up. We see the idea of the covering, the covering that means home for the restless, hope for the hopeless, and peace for the fearful. It's extended through who, what God provides for us. And then thankful for redemption. Things that we can be thankful for in every season because these are things that are the qualities of God that never change. Or gifts of God that we don't earn. Because we don't earn it, means we don't lose it. It's given. It's a costly grace for you and for me. So we're going to close just taking the last couple of minutes looking at another genealogy and, and looking at our redemption in the midst of all this. Our redemption in the midst of all this. David Murray, he's the one that kind of unpacked these four ideas of what the kinsman redeemer must do. Here's how he closes it out. He says, he, being God in this point, God says the redeemer is to be a blood relative, He's got to have the means to make the purchase. He's got to have the willingness. And he's got to be prepared to marry the person he redeems. That's the list we had earlier, those four things. When we think about Christ, we think that's exactly what he's done. We see here the next slide. Jesus as the kinsman redeemer. He was a close relative. He was someone that he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He had to come down and he left the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger. He was, the word became flesh. Hebrews 2 talks about how he is not ashamed to be called our kin, our brother and sister. Hebrews 2.15. So he's a close relative. He couldn't have done it just from staying up in heaven. He had to become fully man while already being fully God. And it's because of that that he was able. He's the only one that was sinless. That John says, John 1.29, which we'll read about more in the next couple of weeks. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world. The one who, uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He's the only one who was that perfect sacrifice, who was sinless. And he laid down his life. He was able. Remember, what I, he just, he laid, he willingly laid down his life. John 10 says, Jesus says, no one's taking my life from me. I willingly lay it down for my sheep. That we recognize that he was someone that we ought to have the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. He's not like Poloni Almoni, who says, I'm going to take advantage of the land situation, but once there's a line situation, I'm out. Jesus says, he, he's someone who, with his attitude, he be, was willing to become a servant, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's someone that was willing to lay down his life with that costly grace that allows us not to be the redeemers, but to be the redeemed. And he's the bridegroom who will marry his bride and continue the family name. He's the one who we talk about in John chapter 14 when he's about to face his death 
And the night that he was betrayed and the night that he was about to be arrested, he talks to his disciples and says, I'm going to go somewhere where you can't go right now. And where I'm going is I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because in my house, there are many mansions. And I've prepared a place for you. And this is all going back to Hebrew wedding language that tells us how the groom would go to the house and he would prepare a place for he and his bride. And once that place was ready, then he would come back and retrieve the bride and bring him into the home. The two would become one flesh and they would have marriage. They'd become married. And so this is, this is wedding language when Jesus is like, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. We see in Ephesians 5 that Paul is talking about the wife and the husband. He's saying, this, the mystery I'm telling you is that this is Christ and his church. So Jesus is the bridegroom. He's willing to marry us even though we've been broken. Even though like Hosea and Gomer, we've fallen short of, we've been adulterous in our faith. He's someone who will redeem us and love us and welcome us home. So Matthew 1, as we look at this. He says that, oh, it's not there, sorry. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, sorry, the first part is verse uh, one. Then verses five through six is Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, I'm going to hide, we're going to, not yet, not, not yet, but in a moment, we're going to go to the next slide, and then a different name is going to be highlighted, because I wonder if, like me, there was a time when you thought, Man, Boaz is a good guy, but why is he so willing? Why is he so willing to go out of his way to face scorn from the neighbors to potentially bring in a foreign woman into his home and to be married to her? Why is he willing to, to sacrifice his inheritance in order to pass it down through a Limelax line? Why is he willing to welcome an outsider into his home to help them to become inside the faith, the community of God? So let's read this again. Let's go to the next slide. Sam and the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Friends, you guys remember who Rahab is? Rahab is the spy, or not spy, excuse me. She's the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. She's the one that was living in Jericho. She's the one that when the spies came and they were seeking out the land of Jericho and the, the city of Jericho, she says, she tells them, I know that God has put the city into your hands. Would you save me and my family? They say, tie a scarlet cord outside your window and make sure everyone you want to be saved is in the room and we will make sure you are rescued. And so she does that. She's rescued. She gets sent out. And we don't hear much else about her story. But eventually we find out she marries a guy named Salmon. And eventually we find out that they have a son named Boaz. Why is, why is Boaz willing to bring in a woman, foreign woman, outsider of ill repute into his family and home? Or sorry, she wasn't of ill repute, but a foreign woman outsider because that's the life that his mom had and she was welcomed in as well. Friends, we can learn a lot through genealogies if we take the time. So we close with this. We see the gospel. David Murray says this um, in his closing quote. He says, we see the gospel in this book so beautifully in God's grace to the undeserving to an outsider, to the alien-like Ruth, and also in the way he is pointing towards the great and glorious Redeemer and the redemption that is to come. We see that God works all things for the good of those who are loved and called according to his purpose. doesn't mean they're easy things, but he can use all things. In the same way that struggling with depression and suicide, I don't wish that upon anyone, but God has allowed the seeds that were soaked in those tears of that season to be a blessing to those who struggle now. I, I don't wish that on anyone, but it's opened up opportunities for me to share about Christ with anyone. 
And so it's just, we don't, we don't want these things. But God can use these things in his grand story of redemption. We're going to skip this next slide. Let's go to that final list that talks about the, looking at Ruth thankful. This idea of we're thankful for kindness. We're thankful for God's providence. We're thankful for his coming. We're thankful for his redemption. And reminds us that in this in every season, we are thankful that in his kindness, God provides covering and redemption for us. That's who he is. That doesn't change whether things are good or bad or in between. His kindness, his loyal love is always there. He provides for us. That's who he is. It's what he does. He provides a covering for us. Because love covers over our sins and gives us rest. And, he gives, and through his redemption, we are able to have eternal life through Christ Jesus. So no matter what season you or I are in, I hope that this series and this closing point can be an encouragement to us that even when things aren't good, we can still sing and thank God for the goodness of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. And Lord, I thank you that um, Lord, that your redemption is something that we can't earn. And Lord, we are not the redeemer. We are the redeemed. And Lord, I pray that for some of us, we may not feel that, so I pray that you would um, exchange the lies of whatever titles or labels we've given ourselves and may we receive the, the titles and the labels of beloved, cared for, redeemed, children of God, for that is what we are when we come to faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, meet us here today. And I thank you for your love for us, the kind of love that provides for us and the kind of love that we can uh, be grateful for no matter what season we're in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.